If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Colossians 3.21. I know I've skipped a few uh, pertinent passages. I'll come back to them. But this uh, makes for a good Father's Day message. Colossians 3.21. Just a little uh, picture for Father's Day. I like it anyway. That's uh, two weeks ago with Ray and Ro and I on the golf course. So that was a lot of fun. Let me go ahead and uh, lead us in a word of prayer. Father God, uh, thank you for godly fathers and grandfathers and surrogate fathers, many of whom are here at Highland and we're so grateful and blessed. And Father, as we talk a little bit about fathering and grandfathering and being a surrogate father, we pray that our skills would sharpen and our understanding of such a vital role would even grow. Father, your word is inspired, it's inerrant. Take your word and apply it to us. Thank you for the epistle to the Colossi church, the Colossians, and help us to continue to mine it and to learn from it. To the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day. Thank you to the many fathers and grandfathers and surrogate fathers who continue to impact our lives in a wonderful way. You are indeed appreciated. As I thought about this message, uh, I wanted to start with a model father and one that was a little less so. So the model father, I don't personally know, though I do know a couple at Highland who do know this man well. I want to talk a little bit about James Dobson. If you know anything about James Dobson, he tells us autobiographically that early on he was a little bit too committed to climbing the corporate ladder and not committed enough to his family. Uh, He became uh, a professor at the University of Southern California working in their medical system. And then he became the chief of staff of Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And he was climbing the corporate ladder. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. Hard work being applied. That's good. But he was doing so to the detriment of his family, and that is not good. And so he received a letter from his own father and later published that letter. And his father essentially said this, James, your daughter, Dani, is growing up in a much more wicked environment than you ever grew up in. A lot of Christian parents have the delusional thought that just because we're Christians, our kids will also be Christians. Not so. It's going to take intentionality. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take time. It will be empty indeed, James. If when you get to the end of your life, you have been highly successful at your career, but not so much parenting your children. 
Dr. Dobson says that that letter really transformed and changed the direction of his life. And he went on to found focus on the family, certainly still worked long hours, hard hours, no doubt about that. But he also invested much more in his family than he did prior. And I love that story because there's a midterm correction, and sometimes that's what all of us need. In fact, a lot of us need multiple midterm corrections because we serve a God of second and hundredth chances. We serve a God that as we grow in the knowledge of Scripture and we apply it, we're always making these mid-course corrections, and yesterday is gone, today is here, Maybe yesterday has been magnificent, but maybe we need some mid-course corrections today. And if so, this would be a great text to have it. It was a text in Dr. Dobson's life. Well, that's the positive example. I want to give another one. This guy was born in either 1820 or 1822. He was born to a family that at one time had been very committed to Judaism. He had grandparents and great-grandparents, great-grandfathers that had been rabbis. His own father was committed to a kosher home. His father always practiced the Sabbat, and his entire family studied the Torah. But prior to his birth, that changed. It changed when the German town they were in made a new law that specified that lawyers had to be Lutherans. This young boy's father was a lawyer, and overnight he and the family became Lutherans. And so this young boy grew up knowing this account. He grew up knowing that faith is convenient, and when it's inconvenient, you switch face. And he went off to college in England and he wrote a book entitled The Critique of Hegel's Philosophy of the Right. And in the introduction to that book, he wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. Who taught him that? His dad. I'm sure that phrase never came from his dad's lips. But who taught him that? His dad, his dad taught him that faith is convenient, not sacrificial. That faith is a side show, not the main show. And billions of individuals have lived under the tyranny of communism and socialism. And if you are, by the way, tempted by socialism, do a geopolitical study or historical study of what socialism has meant to faith in the history of mankind. Horrific. It is not our friend. Well, thankfully, many here today have done so much better. Lived out your faith. Faith not being just convenient, but being transformational in one's life. Lived out before the next generation. Well done. 
Well, I want to pick up in today's text one verse. Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The word father is pateras. It's really the most common word for father in Koine Greek or Biblical Greek. Yet one scholar who I actually learn a lot from, and he knows better than to write this. I think he was writing a Mother's Day sermon out of Colossians 3.21. He said that we ought to translate Pateras parent. It absolutely has application for male and female. But Pateras doesn't mean parent. And it really doesn't mean female. It means male. This text is singling out the men. The fathers and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers and the surrogate fathers to lead the next generation well into a relationship with the Lord. All of us can eavesdrop in. All of us can take the verses and apply it to our lives. But even in context, if you look at the context of this part of Colossians 3, There are genders given, there are ages given, there's specificity given in the text. And this primarily is for fathers and grandfathers, surrogate fathers, but it has application to everyone. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That word provoke, erethizo, is translated in a number of different ways antagonized by the NASB, exasperate by the CSB, embitter by the NIV, aggravate by the New Living Translation, or my ESV, provoke. I think the semantic range of this covers all of them, but if I were to choose, I think the NIV nailed it. Fathers, do not embitter your children lest you discourage them. That's what God is calling us not to do. We don't want to discourage. We want to encourage the next generation to make the next step in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, every time we talk about fathers not discouraging, the truth is we're talking to individuals who have had a wide variety of experiences with fathers. Some of you have had fathers that have been really involved in your lives. Praise the Lord. Some have had fathers really involved in your lives that don't yet know Jesus, but they really love you. Praise the Lord. And may they come to Jesus. Others have had fathers that know Jesus, have modeled it before you, and really have loved you well. Praise the Lord. But others... Some of you have had abusive fathers, fathers that have been discouraging and disappointing. And our heart goes out to you, and we don't want to sweep that under the rug. That's real. And if you need someone to talk to, we're available to hear and to pray with you and encourage you. But if you've had that kind of father, that's not the father we have in heaven. The father we have in heaven loves us created us out of love, sustains us out of love, and offers to redeem us out of the most incredible act of love, 
For the Father willed his willing Son to leave the glories of heaven and take on human flesh, fully God and fully man, living a sinless, perfect life, and then going to the cross and enduring the horror of crucifixion. But one step, one major step more, because the one who never sinned is covered with our sin, and the perfect fellowship between Father and Son is broken on behalf of us. For the wages of sin is death, and he dies for us. And then he's buried, and he conquers death, and on the third day he rises again, that if by faith we would realize we are sinners, confess that, agree with God, and ask Jesus to be our Savior, and empowered by his Spirit, begin to turn from sin, we are saved. That's a loving Father. That's the kind of Father that is the model for all parental figures. We ought to be like that Father. Well, I want to look at Colossians 3.21. I'm actually going to offer four ways that we could embitter our children. Fathers, do not provoke, discourage, antagonize, aggravate, embitter your children lest they become discouraged. I think the first way that we could embitter the next generation is to be overly harsh or angry. That embitters the next generation. What is the purpose of discipline? It's not get the kid. It's not you have made me angry and now you are going to endure the wrath of dad. It's not harshness. The point of discipline is what the Bible says discipline is. How does our father discipline us? Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In context, this is what God does to his children, spiritual children, those who believe in Jesus Christ. He brings discipline into our lives not because he's angered, not because he's going to get the kid, not because he is harsh. He brings discipline in our lives for a purpose, to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we discipline the next generation, the purpose is always not because we're angry, not because we've been embarrassed, Angry discipline or embarrassed discipline is almost always sinful discipline. Think of it this way. If we discipline out of anger or embarrassment, we have actually been controlled by our children. They've controlled us. But why do we discipline? To produce the fruit of righteousness. That's the purpose of discipline that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I think by definition, that rules out swearing at our kids, yelling at our kids, threatening our kids, being harsh with our kids. It rules all of those things out. I'm thankful that Highland has 
what I believe to be many godly fathers and grandfathers and surrogate fathers who aren't perfect, but are really, really good models for the rest of us. I want to illustrate with a longitudinal study. It was published in 1913, or 19, uh, no, 2013, wrong, wrong century, 2013. It was published in Business Weekly and the New York Times Business Review. It was a 50-year longitudinal study. Those are really rare because they take 50 years. And they discovered that 72% of employees hear less than one compliment in a whole week of work. They discovered that 32% of employees hear less than one thanks or encouragement in three months worth of work. And they made a correlation between how often one is encouraged and thanked and how productive one is. A correlation between how one is encouraged and thanked and how easy one makes mid-course corrections to the benefit of the organization. And the more one is encouraged and thanked, the more productive and the more corrections are made that are benefiting the company. In other words, from a business point of view, it behooves us, any who supervise or manage, to encourage, to thank, because we'll get more productivity and better productivity out of our employees. Well, I think that's true in parenting as well. If we're constantly harping on children, we're going to get one set of results if we're constantly encouraging and spurring them on the height of where they can go as children grows and grows and grows. And we have the ability to help that. So rather than discourage, causing despair, embitterment, we can do just the opposite in the next generation. Personally, and you can say this is easy for you, your kids are all grown. That's true. But I do have two living in my house right at the moment. Uh, two grandkids. I got a couple of adult kids too. Uh, but I've come to believe that yelling at the next generation doesn't help. I want to save yelling for when somebody's in danger. If Roe is about to go out on the street, I will yell, stop! But if I'm constantly yelling, he's not going to stop because he's heard that before. And he's heard that before again and again and again. Why do we allow our emotions and our children to control the way we parent? If we learn to allow our yes to be yes, our no to be no, and we keep ourselves in control and our emotions in control and our volume in control, we can parent more effectively than if we're controlled or angered or we control, or we are or parenting out of embarrassment, if we keep ourselves in control, we will have better fruit, the fruit of righteousness in our children. Well, that's my first point. Second, I think we embitter our children when we're overcritical towards them. Uh, this is similar, but slightly different than my first point. Again, I'm going to 
go out of the business world. A Harvard Business Review article by Dr. Zenger and Folkman did a study and found that the average person will only make a mid-course correction if they are encouraged at least five times to every suggestive correction. I've read other studies that are seven to one. That's the one I use in my premarital counseling. In other words, if we want to impact someone, we need to encourage them between five and seven times for every corrective we offer. Because if there's too many correctives, we stop listening. I was with somebody yesterday, not my wife, by the way. I was with somebody yesterday that was just overly critical. And I stopped listening. And then they said something important and wanted an answer. And I'm like, um, I'll be honest with you. I stopped listening to you like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? If somebody just goes on and on and on and they harp and they're critical, we just kind of drown them out. Tone them out, stop listening. Their background music, not even pleasant. But if we're constantly building somebody up and then we offer a mid-course correction, they know that we're on their side and they'll listen. In this regard, I think of uh, Lake Wobegon. Some of you listened to that on the radio. I didn't listen to it, but my dad did and he told us some of the stories. And uh, one of the stories was about uh, a baseball coach, E.J. Schroeder. And uh, his starting lineup, his nine players, were his sons. So dad was coaching his nine sons. And dad was always harping at him, always critical. So if uh, one swung at a bad pitch, they heard about it all day and probably in the next day. It was just the worst thing that kid had ever done. Or if one of them happened to hit the ball really hard and it goes over the fence, his dad would say, ah, your grandma could have put wood on that one. The wind carried it out. No offense, grandmas. I'm just telling you the story. <laughs> one day, uh, a ball was hit over E.J. Jr.'s head in center field. And he was playing it well and he realized he couldn't possibly catch up to it. And so he did something, by the way, illegal, but I guess in the radio show it passed. He took his glove and he hit the ball out of the air, caught the glove, caught, caught the ball, and everyone in the stands went crazy. And he came in and his dad said, I saw that in Superior, Wisconsin. Much darker, much harder play. Yours wasn't all that great. And what does that do to a child? What does it do to a child when they can never measure up there's always someone who does it better, and we're always being critical. Do we really think we are encouraging that child, or are we pushing that child to be less than they ought to be? Fathers, do not provoke, discourage, antagonize, aggravate, embitter your children, lest they become discouraged. My third and fourth I'm going to kind of interact with together. And the third is the opposite pole of overprotection, bad, and neglect, bad. Overprotection. 
I think that's the bubble-wrapped kid. The bubble-wrapped kid has parents who are hovering over the child and never let the child have any breathing room, any freedom. We're not going to give you any opportunity to sin. And you know what happens? When that child gets out of the home, they go crazy. That child has never learned how to handle temptation. Never. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got came from Tom Schindler. And Tom said this. He said, Jeff, you want your kids to make their biggest sin mistakes while they're still at home. Don't worry about being embarrassed. You want your kids to make the biggest sin mistakes when they're living at home, and you can help them pick up the pieces. What you don't want to do is so bubble wrap your kids that they don't know how to handle life. And then they go off to work or school, and you're not there, and they go crazy. Betty Ann and I saw that. We both grew up in homes in which uh, kindergarten through 12, we went to a public school. And in our case, they were both excellent schools. And then we went to a Christian college, the same one. That's where we met three weeks into college. And what we observed is this. The kids who made the transition in the poorest fashion were bubble-wrapped. And their freshman and sophomore years, they did more immoral, unethical, ungodly things than anyone else because they didn't know how to handle temptation. So we need to learn to give leashes when we parent. Obviously, freedom is earned. But when it's earned, give them freedom. Are they going to sin? Well, you do. And so do I. But we're there to pick up the pieces. This is how I think we ought to parent. We ought to constantly be praying for our kids. When they're in the home, we ought to be reading scripture to them. We ought to help them form a biblical worldview. Dave is on my left. He doesn't know I'm about to say this because I didn't know I was about to say it until I said it in the first hour. So now it's the second hour. It's not in my notes, Dave. But I want to tell a story about Dave. I remember coming into work and saying, Dave, I don't know what I'm going to do. My son wants to read Harry Potter and there will be no Harry Potter in my house. And Dave said, oh, I'm reading it with my grandkids. It's wonderful. What? And he uses it to form a worldview. And that was a mid-course correction. I don't care what you do with Harry Potter. You do what you want. But it was a mid-course correction. Because I can spare my kids from Harry Potter, and guess what they're going to do when they get off to college? <laughs> they're going to read Harry Potter without me interacting with good and evil. And in fact, in Harry Potter, good always triumphs evil. But I don't care what you do with Harry Potter. The point is this. I could bubble wrap my kids or I can take real life. And I can say, let's look at what's going on. Let's look at it from a biblical worldview. So that's what we did with Harry Potter. Um, I'm not trying to talk you into what you ought to do with it. 
But that's what I want to do with television. Sometimes, absolutely turn it off. Sometimes, we can talk about what we just saw compared to what God expects in our lives. That's teaching a biblical worldview. That's what we want to do with our kids. We want to read scripture. We want to pray with them. We want to pray for them. We want to make church a priority. In Gen 180 and, and um, One Way Club and Sunday School, we want to make these things a priority. And we want to teach the next generation how to manage sin, how to manage temptation, how to form a biblical worldview. Listen to what Deuteronomy 6 says. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 9. And these words that I commend you, command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, you're constantly teaching a biblical worldview. That's how we want to parent the next generation. You might notice something, and I said this in traditions. It was more apropos there, but it's still apropos here. I just gave you two individuals that built into my life, both of whom are a little older than me. So some of us don't have kids in our families. Some of us don't have kids in our homes. Some of us are of a little more mature age. What is our job? To build into the next generation. Not just the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, but the younger parents. And when we build into the younger parents, we're not only telling them our successes, but some of our failures that they might not step into the same holes we did. And we model and we share the next, or the truths with the next generation. That's what we're called to do. That's what I think happens in the life of Timothy. Timothy is this young guy who is used mightily. He's a timid guy who doesn't have a father parental figure. So what happens? Mom and grandma step in. And they still teach him a worldview. They still teach him scripture. Let me read 2 Timothy 1, 5 and 6. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fam the flame and the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands, etc. And then the next Page, chapter 3, 14 to 16. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. Where did he learn it? From his mother and grandmother. And, from, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood, this is what they taught him. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings. They brought scripture into their house, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the context. Now listen to the next two verses. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do we know that the context of those two very famous verses is a mother and a grandmother 
who have a father-husband out of the picture. He is not training the next generation. And they're training the next generation with the sacred scriptures. They're building a worldview. They're praying for their son. And God uses Timothy in a mighty way. Not in a vacuum. It was what was built into him by a mother, a grandmother. In this case, a father failed. And this is our job. Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not provoke, discourage, antagonize, aggravate, embitter your children, lest they become discouraged. So we want to not bubble wrap our children. We want to teach them a biblical worldview so that when they face temptation, they know how to handle it. But the opposite pole is also true. We're not to be neglectful parents, fathers, grandfathers. It is a sacred obligation in our lives to raise the next generation. Whether they're out of the home or not, we still, we still are parents, we're grandparents, we're parental figures. We can build into them parental neglect embitters children. When they become adults, they say, hey, where was dad? Where was granddad? Why didn't they build into my life? There are a few things more important than what we do in the next generation. I think of David. David is just such a mixed bag. I know that Gen 180 just went through David. And he's got these high points. He's got these low points. And yet God, always the encourager, what does God do? He says, he's a man after my own heart. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't have said that about David. And as a father, he's a parental mess. He's just a mess. He embittered his son Absalom so much that when Absalom is a grown adult, he sat at the gate. And when people had judicial uh, court cases before David and they didn't like the results, Absalom would say to them on the sly, oh, that's my dad, he's just a jerk. And eventually Absalom usurped the throne of his father, tried to murder his father. His father is on the lamb. And then there's the son Amnon. He rapes the daughter Tamar. And then Absalom murders Amnon. And really, all of it goes back to David's relationship with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan saying, it will be hard in your family. And it was. And David, we have no evidence of this man building into the life of his family. Built into the kingdom. Built into his kingdom. But he seems to have neglected his own family. The opposite poles. You don't want to bubble wrap your kids, but you got to be involved in their lives regardless of how old those kids are. And so I want to close today with a, a word of grace and a word of encouragement. The word of grace is this. Yesterday is gone. Today is here. Maybe... For some of us, we have more regrets than we do victories. Yesterday is gone. Remember what Paul said, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. 
Yesterday is gone. What kind of father, grandfather, surrogate, father, parent figure are you and I going to be today? Maybe we confess our failures. We learn from them. If need be, we work at rebuilding relationships with kids who are embittered. Yesterday is gone. Today is the day of grace. What are we going to do today? And then a word of encouragement, because some in this room have been amazing fathers and grandfathers and surrogate fathers. Well done. Thanks for being the example for so many of us. But one of the taglines at Highland is taking the next step in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So even the best of fathers and grandfathers and surrogate fathers still have a next step to become even more what God desires you, I, us to become. So some, we need a word of grace. Yesterday's gone. How are we going to father and grandfather and surrogate father today? And others need a word of encouragement. You have done well. Thank you. And all of us need to remember we have a next step. Let's take that next step for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for so many incredible parental figures at Highland. Some that have impacted my life and continue to do so, and we are grateful. And Father, in in some ways, there is no formulaic step-by-step to be the best father or grandfather, but we know it starts with you. We know it starts with grace. It's filled with your word, and it forms a biblical worldview. It's involved, and it's engaged. It's learning from those who have gone in front of us. It's confessing failures and turning from failures. And taking the next step towards being the parent that you desire. It's disciplining with an eye towards building the fruit of righteousness. I think of you, God, in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And if you parent us with steadfast love and new mercies every morning, may we imitate that model in the next generation. Father, help us to parent well. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.